Dead or alive, you are coming with me. What is this bullshit? Good trash genre cast. I love you. I know. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Ah! Ah! Get to the chopper! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. Blessed Sawin to you, listener. <laughs> and we are back and rolling in with Shocktober, discussing the films that you'll never discuss in the Film Stays course. This week's film is a documentary about Etsy called The Craft. And uh, that is very fun. We are very, very excited. You were clearly pleased with the yourself. third act focus on Pinterest, uh, really uh, titillated <laughs> me. <laughs> titillated by Pinterest. Uh. I really, I really, I feel like that's my like, Hellraiser sequel. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> Pinterest head. <laughs> Man, oh. uh, so hey, uh, this is our sixth. Sixth annual Shocktober Marathon. Man, That's I cannot wild. believe it. Well, uh, wild. We, we decided early on in the show that, um, you know, we're doing a show where we talk about the films you wouldn't normally discuss in a film studies course. And if we always had horror movies on the table, it would be very easy to just do mostly horror movies. Yeah. And frankly, there's already a very good film analysis podcast focused on horror film, the faculty of horror. So uh, we try to keep that reined in uh, to the month of October. And it's it's upon us, the season of Zivich. Um it's actually October 1st as a recording, so it's very exciting. Um, I've already watched uh, two horror movies today. I watched one. I watched one yesterday, so I'm going to count that one. Good. You should. I will. Yeah. Was it at night? No. Ah, okay. Well, it still counts. So, yeah. Welcome welcome to Spoop, Spoop Town, Population Us. There you go. Um, and so let's uh, let's not uh, let's not delay ourselves any further. Let's go ahead and identify our voices uh, for the dear listeners. Who are you across the way in the recliner, sir? I am Arthur Gordon, and I drink of my brothers, and I take into myself all the power of Manon. Nice. <laughs> is that you can all? drink of me any time, buddy. That is all. <laughs> all right. Uh, who are you, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and we are the weirdos, Mister. That is an accurate statement. My name is Dustin Sells, and you know, in the old days, if a coast betrayed his podcast, we would kill him. That's true. That is true. That is true. It happened. It, it, it did happen. Yeah, you, you never hear about the mysterious sixth member of the Good Trash <laughs> Media Network. Yeah, we, no. They're gone. They didn't make it out of UCO. Yeah, we, we don't talk about Todd anymore. Todd. Oh, shit, I said his name. Say it two more times and we're in real trouble. Well, you don't say it again. He'll he'll Beetlejuice us. He'll I three know by three. He'll, all that thing. Yeah, he'll... his name was Robert Paulson. <laughs> Come on. No, we don't talk. We did that movie one time. We got it off the books. We never talk about it on this show ever again. Uh, so, just to warn you, dear listener, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Media uh, Network for the very first time, because it is the uh, season of the witch, and you're looking for all good horror movie podcasty kinds of things, and perhaps you're a big fan of the craft. Uh, um, and you're tuning in for the very first time. This is not a review show. It is an analysis show. So if you have not seen The Craft, we will be spoiling the films 
conclusion uh, throughout the course of our analysis. However, we give you the briefest of reprieves. What we do is a synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Then we move directly into thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which tend to be spoiler free. Then we play a game always on the show. It's a game that everybody plays, but nobody ever wins, and yet we keep playing it. And uh, what happens there is uh, we might spoil this film mildly or other films in its orbit, but we generally stay away from those during that time as well. And then we get down to business, that business being analysis. And when that goes down, guys, all spoiler bets are off. You have been warned. So without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear that synopsis. A newcomer to a Catholic prep high school falls in with a trio of outcast teenage girls who practice witchcraft. And they all soon conjure up various spells and curses against those who even slightly anger them. Okay, I got a question about this Catholic prep school thing. Yeah. Okay, so what Catholic prep school or other school at all in terms of uh, secondary studies has a dress code in which the dress code is relaxed because it's your first day and you haven't got a uniform yet? Do we even know of anything like that that even exists? I have never gone to a private school, so I don't know. I really feel like only, like, two of the people are properly in uniform anyway well that'd be my next question yeah that school is real lax, lax. on the code yeah Feruza, i don't buy it Feruza bulk's got like chokers on every day yeah. and upside down cross earrings and she's got like an all all leather uh uniform and, and yeah and even uh, nev campbell's uniform isn't always yeah she's always got a sweater on yeah pretty lax dress code yeah i i, I feel like uh the boys Rochelle. all have their shirts untucked yeah I don't buy it. Yeah, there's a couple in Blazers, but most of them Someone don't. is dropping the ball. Yeah, that's so that, it is... Cool. I mean, all the adults in this movie are dropping the ball. <laughs> Jesus what Christ, adults? where are the parents? <laughs> it, it, it is the world's most chill Catholic prep school of yeah. all time. It is a decidedly 90s movie because there are... I mean, the parents, having, the, the parents are very uninvolved, yeah. uh, and there's no reason and for And they're it. having way too much fun in Mass. Yeah, they're really cutting up in Mass. Yeah, I are. mean, I'm not Catholic, but I know that you don't fuck around in Mass. That's yeah. the impression I've always been given. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think you play. But anyway, uh, so yeah, this film is of of its time. It's a '90s film. It is a uh, something of a rite of passage, um, with all the puns intended uh, for uh, '90s young women and sleepover parties. So um, let's just go ahead and talk quickly about those brief uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Reviews. I thought you were going to say let's talk briefly about those '90s sleepover parties. <laughs> no, no, we, we we sworn we would never tell. I laughed so hard I threw up one time. <laughs> we were up at 3 a.m. drinking on that sweet, sweet dew. There's something very beautiful about uh, those early uh, sleepovers where, uh, before you're interested in, like, you know, booze and girls. Uh, there's something very wholesome and yet completely chaotic and evil about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's a lot of Friday 13th films involved in uh, my my slumber party memories how many pink bellies did you give and or receive at a 90 sleepover uh zero because we were the bullied lot and we didn't play by that foolishness see i i i found myself in a in a group that included like two bullies for the sake of like bully safety um i had ended up in a group that included bullies we got a couple of pink bellies I don't care for it. No, no, not, not a fan. I don't care for that tomfoolery anymore. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard pass. But let's talk about this. What do you think of the movie, Dalton? Thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, it's weird. Uh, you'd think I'd seen this movie before. Um, I have not. Uh, it is decidedly in my wheelhouse. I enjoy 90s films. I enjoy all the actresses in this film. Uh, I, I, I enjoy especially like 90s, the 90s teen aesthetic quite a great deal because it was an aesthetic I grew up admiring. Um, obviously, I wasn't a teen until uh, after the 90s ended. Uh, but I know Dustin shaking his head, feeling quite elderly. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I continued to dress like it was still the 90s all the way uh, into like 2008. Yesterday. So I'm going to say 2008. He's got his uh, light up pumps on right now. No, barefoot. It's my home. No shoes. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm shocked that I've never seen this movie, especially again, because around this age, the, the age that I should have seen this movie, I had lots of friends that were girls who were into this movie. Um, just never got around to it, though. And um, I see what the hubbub's about. It's very fun. Um, you know, both the soundtrack, uh, the costuming, um, it, it's, it's a very charming film. Is it a good film? Uh, that kind of seems to miss the point. I think, uh, if you go into this film saying, is it good? Um, because it's, it's got problems, uh, that we'll get into an in analysis, but it's also got problems in terms of like story structure. Um, the third act is really kind of shitty to be perfectly honest. Um, but Again, there's lots of fun hero shots of, uh, of girls in cool costumes walking in slow motion. Um, there's just fun stuff. Them hanging out is the best part. The second act of this movie is, without a doubt, the highlight of the film. Because uh, it's just everybody hanging out, having fun, and you know, learning to be friends and accept themselves. Um, and then the patriarchy turns women against each other, as it often does. Uh, and honestly, I'm not a big fan of that sequence of the film. Uh, it becomes much more conventional than it had been. And uh, I don't really care for that. So... I, I like it a lot. I enjoy it. Uh, if I ever watch it again, I'll probably stop it after the first hour, though. Well, fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dolphin. What do you say, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Um, was this your first time also? Uh, yeah, I don't think I'd ever watched it. I, wow. I remember seeing some clips of it on TV, I believe, on Fox or something like that. I remember it being uh, in, in syndication quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, there. Um, but yeah, I've never actually got around to watching it and I kind of have always been interested to see it. And especially Me, in the I last well. year, it's come up quite a bit. I feel like in conversation, this is 20 years or not, uh, last year was 20 years, right? Yeah. It's 96. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's got that 20th anniversary and I think, uh, Alamo is about to do something, a big screening with it. Mm -hmm. And so there's also rumblings about a, a reboot or yeah. a remake. Um, I don't know how far into production that is, but apparently it has been greenlit. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like it's really in the societal conscience right now, but, uh, uh, I, I, Dalton says it's fun, and I, I agree with that. I think there was some fun stuff to it. It's so 90s. It, mm -hmm. You know, the phrase five-finger discount comes up, and I <laughs> yes. laughed a lot. And somebody doesn't know what it means. Yeah. Oh it's God. so sweet. There's something sweet and innocent about that. That yeah. that reverend. No one's going to get that now. I mean, you show this kid down there, and we're like, what? What does that even mean? Um, but uh, I, I think there are some fun moments like that that land. And, and there are moments, like you said, the sleepovers are a lot of fun. When they're doing the uh, uh, stiffest board light of his feathers, it's a really great scene. Really charming. Um, but for me, a lot... I, I don't love a lot of it. Uh, the, the performance is, I mean, Feruza Balk's great. Oh, Feruza my Balk God. She's, great. she's amazing. She's the best. She's the best of those. It makes the me movie. really sad that she is just, like, kind of disappeared a little bit career-wise. Yeah. And I, I feel like the next best performance in this film is Breckenmeyer as the, just the dick. Uh, Breckenmeyer is such a sweetheart that he cannot play douchebag yeah. convincingly. But uh, I, I really feel like he's the only, I mean, uh, Skeet's just, he's not doing it for Skeet me here. Skeet does not seem like he gives um, a shit. Robin uh, Tunney's not doing anything for me she here. Just, she doesn't have a lot to do either, um, I feel like. I uh, mean. Wait, that's Rochelle's. No, that's the main. Okay, what's the name of the actress that plays Rochelle? Uh, Rachel, Rachel True. True. Rachel True. I and like she's her. Not, yeah. She doesn't have a lot to do, though. And, and that's the thing. Her I, subplot kind of feels weird compared to everybody else. Absolutely. And it feels kind of token because when they realized, when they cast her, they added the racism thing in. That, so that it, kind of feels It feels forced. super obvious, too. That and they yeah. were like That they were like, oh, we should, let's address uh, racism. Yeah. It's like, um, throw a dart. No one has a character arc is a big yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's two-dimensional. Two and so for me, that doesn't work as well. And there's just some direction so i don't i don't love the editing the editing's bad 
It's just poorly put it's together from shot to shot, like fades and things. Mid-budget yeah. 90s. Yeah, it's a very 90s. It feels like a TV movie kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Um, so those things are really working against it for me. Um, and I also kind of wish I, – I appreciate that they brought in a Wicca – Mm-hmm. Um, consultant who knew the art and who knew the the different rituals and things and how to add that kind of realistic approach to it. But I feel like the movie is so overly produced, especially in that third act, that when they do any kind of spells, it just – they feel kind of cheesy in the way that they're put together and shot. And and Light as a Feather works great because mm-hmm. it's kind of a smaller, more intimate sequence, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of a small, fun, intimate game, mm-hmm. and that works. But when they're doing some of the other spells, like out in the field or at the beach, it just – they're almost too ridiculous in this world that they've created. If this had been like a smaller indie horror film where they could have had that more intimate setting all the way through and that kind of works for them, but to be so overly produced throughout the film to have these kind of – low-key spell moment like i feel like there should have been something more there i know exactly what you mean because it's like they spent all they went through all this trouble of like having a consultant um and then feruza bulk uh, i don't know if she still is but at the time was a practicing wiccan so yeah they went through all this trouble of trying to be as respectful as they could yeah. and still make a hollywood movie until about the middle of the second yeah. act and then they're just like never mind i would have rather had those kind of those realistic you know spell sequences bigger yeah and then just kind of continue that throughout. Yeah. Instead of I kind absolutely of agree. like I feel like it's a tale of two things that they're trying to pull and I don't feel it works. They tried well. to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I like the movie quite a bit. Um, it was the second time, maybe third time. I can't remember if I caught it in theaters or not uh, when it came out. I definitely was uh, catching all the films at that point when it was released. So I don't really recall one way or the other. My main recollection of seeing this film for the first time was on the first time I ever went on a date to a girl's house to watch a movie. And uh, this was the movie involved. I did not pay um, the appropriate amount of attention in this particular event so um my memory did is... you tell i think you t- did you tell that story on uh, people's history film um no i, I talked about uh, another film i think for okay that. but anyway because yeah i think it was the crow 2 that i did oh. not watch at all is that city of angels yes yeah. and uh, but nonetheless what movie did the guy od in Mm-hmm. You told a story about somebody that OD'd the movie. Oh, that was Alien Resurrection. Okay. When it was in the theater. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. That was a bad day. That was, that was, that was a crazy, crazy day. But um, anyway, so The Craft is one of those films that's sort of connected to some of that kind of stuff. It's, it's got that nostalgia it's got It definitely you. got nostalgia. I remember thinking it was fun. I remember thinking it was fine and all of that. I, I re- upon the rewatch, yeah, I like this movie. It, it, it's fun. It is all those sort of 90s things. It's clueless with witchcraft, and I'm okay with that. You know, And it's, it's just as nonsensical in some of the same ways and it's just as problematic and also just as fun in uh, many of the same ways. But, you know, um, what, like, like Arthur, I do think sometimes – they get a little too big with some of the magic. Um, I don't care for walking on water. Um, that was just a bit much for me. Uh, I also, there's a dream bit that I was so glad it was a dream uh, because if it had been real, it would have been just way too hocus pocus. It would have been yeah. way just too much, too much. And even fa- fa- the fact matters, even though the reveal is it ends up being a dream, it's still a little much uh, for me in the experience there. But uh, performances and all that kind of stuff, I think are fine. I think everybody's doing a good job with what they've got um i don't have as a uh, ill feelings towards skeet ulrich i think as you guys do i think i really i don't i don't feel like he's because i like skeet ulrich generally speaking i mean obviously he made a career of being a douchebag in yeah. the 90s so. i think he's he's 
twice as good in, in Screamer more. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's more to do, but I, I fault the screenplay more than I do him. No, that's fair. You I know. think most of my issues with the film are the, the technical things that are really problematic in so far as the way it comes together. But with what he's got to do, I think he does just fine. You know, he does a good job of being douchey, like like charming to, to start out with and then turns out to be douchey, and then love Lorne. You know, I, I think he does he does a fine okay. job of all of that kind of stuff. I think there's a there's a real threat in his face uh, when um, it, that, that love Lorne-ness turns dangerous. I think he does a fine job with all of that. I, I gotta say, though, uh, Asumpta Sarna is in this movie, uh, who, who's a Spanish actress, and I love her. She's in The Piano Tune of Earthquakes, a uh, Quay Brothers film that I really, really love. And uh, her performance as the sort of wizened, uh, a middle-aged woman who, who knows things about witchcraft is great, and I just, I just love seeing her. It's a good bit of casting uh, you know, for an actress who doesn't do a whole lot of work here in the States. Mm. Um, and, and so, and she was sort of trying to do a States break-in there in the night. She does this film. She does a couple of erotic thrillers and, you know, those kind of things here and there. But uh, overall, her, her, her language, uh, her, rather, her films have been foreign language films. But I really, really like the actress. She's got a good presence and charisma on screen. Um, I do think uh, Robin Tooney or Lauren Tooney, what's her name? Robin Tooney. Robin Tooney it, it is is very blank vessel. She's almost Keanu Reeves like in sort of her transness. Yeah, that that, it, that neutral hero mask yeah, thing going. Yeah, it, and, I, and I don't love that. I did remark as I watched the film, and this is just something that's just strange. And it's okay that it's there, but I almost need explanation. She has the strangest walk. Her gait is bizarre when she's walking. And you see that early on in the film when she's sort of walking in front of the group of girls. And then they have a big sort of slow motion hero shot when they're wearing their awesome witch clothes, you know, to prep school. And they move her to the back. And it's a good choice because she walks weird. I mean, and, I, and it's, it's one of those strange things that sort of just takes me out of the film. It's and, another weird thing where, I mean, Faruza Polk is decidedly the star of this film. Right. Like, w- yeah. without question. Uh, and it just kind of it feels like a waste like it's once they realize they have this amazing performer uh you almost wish they had decided to like take the screenplay back to the drawing board and and do do something different because the turn uh for her character is just kind of uninteresting um and we'll talk more about that once we get into more spoilery segments but the reasons for her turn never really make sense um and again, I, I think this all comes back to no real character arcs to speak of. I mean, Nev Campbell gets to do two different performances, but you could hardly call it a character arc. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it's just one of those things where it's like every time I, I start to get really engaged with this movie, it just kind of missteps and, and takes me out of it a little bit. Right. But uh, I guess what I'd say th- is this in conclusion is if I consider it as a teenage film for teenagers mm. and I consider its moment, I get why the craft yeah. is a thing. I get why it's a big deal. I get why it resonated. I get why it was so much fun. I get why so much late night popcorn, you know, in pajamas uh, before, after, and during pillow fights, why this film was consumed in the way that it was. Like that totally makes sense to me but i also think uh as an adult looking at it there there's more problem with the film than there is success there is there's more troubling than there is entertaining with the film but otherwise it it, it i get it and it's it is what it is and as as the thing that it is i think it succeeds yeah it's got that unfortunate and i'm sure we'll talk about this with you know our, our uh, experience uh, having been you know straight male teenagers we had our own you know sleepover movies and you go and revisit those and sometimes you get surprised and go holy shit this is actually really good and then sometimes you go oh man oh, mm-hmm. this is kind of bad 
I don't think the craft ever dips fully into, oh, this is kind of bad territory. But, yeah, it, it definitely it, – it is great for what it is, but taken out of what it is, it, it's – Fair to Midland. Yeah, I'm sure many, many women go, yeah, I can understand why 15-year-old me loved this. But, yeah, 25, 35-year-old me might be like, yeah, it's okay. you know. And, and if I'd seen it at 25 or 35, I think they'd probably say, yeah, it probably would have been a pass for them uh, at this point in life. So, it again, it is definitely very, very marketed towards a particular um, adolescent niche. And uh, that's just that's just what it is. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our general reviews. We are middling to positive, I would say, if I were to summarize our reviews up to this point. And we are having this conversation, as we always do, here in Dalton's apartment. We thank you again, Dalton, for uh, making your home available to us. We appreciate that, buddy. Um, and uh, we're doing this thing because we like to talk about movies. And we do this stuff all the time, no matter what, with or without the podcast, with or without you, the listening audience. We want to have the conversation with you and we do it via those means of social media so how does that take place dalton yeah uh, i mean the three of us can talk about this movie all the live long day with our only relatively nuanced views i mean we are still who we are so uh i definitely would like to know what uh the women who grew up with this movie and have revisited as adults think about it um and you can do that through the various means that we have uh primarily that's going to be uh, twitter.com at good underscore trash um, and you can also find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash GTM. Those are the places to engage with us on a weekly basis. And let us know uh, what your takes, hot or cold or Luke, uh, warm would be. I was just going to say Luke, and I was like, this ain't going to make any sense. More of a parboil. Yeah, par- <laughs> Um, so yeah, let, let us know what you think. Uh, once again, that is facebook.com forward slash GTM and Twitter at good underscore trash. And as always, if you want to support us, uh, you know, we don't want your money. This is a DIY thing. The Patreon is still technically active. Do that if you feel feel it in your heart. But more more often than not, we would just appreciate your rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your desired uh, podcast delivery format. All righty. Well, there you go, dear listener. Enough of this, guys. I think it's time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> And we're back from ma- from uh, making the corners and uh, casting our hexes, and now we're going to play our game, which is our favorite 90s cult films. Oh, that's right. Favorite cult classics from the 1990s, brought to you by The Craft. The Craft. Pop that popcorn. I, I don't know. I actually, I have no idea what girls do at slumber parties uh, when, they're, when they're youths. Um, but yeah, watch The Craft, and we'll talk about the movies we watched uh, at similar points in our lives. Uh, there you go. So uh, without any further ado, I go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your first selection? for your favorite 90s cult films. Uh, well, this is a movie that I came to uh, well after the 90s. It was actually just a few years ago probably that I saw it for the first time. Uh, but it's late 90s. It's 99. And it's Spike Jones's, uh being John Malkovich. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Good one. With John Cusack. Was that right? Yeah. Okay. I felt like that was off for some reason. Oh, yeah. It's the Cus. Uh, okay. Uh, Cusack. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's just such an interesting story. Like, I love how unique that screenplay is. Um to find a way to let people live with inside John Malkovich's head uh, for a moment in time and then just get dropped on the side of the highway. Yeah, I There's mean, something... I, I, it, it's so catching. Yeah, and it's decidedly Kaufman. You know, Charlie Kaufman wrote, wrote the screenplay, yeah. Spike Jones directing. Yeah. I mean, it's so far up both of their alleys because yeah. it's just like magical realism constantly with no explanation. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so fun. And there's some... 
rolling on the floor. ROFL. If we're going 90s, let's go 90s. There are some <laughs> ROFL moments in this film, especially in regards to a certain monkey uh, mm. and some subtitles that are used with that monkey. Mm. Um, Cameron Diaz is so funny. Yeah, Diaz in movie. is great. Uh, it's it's just a blast. It's so fascinating, and I feel like we don't get a lot of movies that unique anymore. Or, or if we do, we just don't get as much access to it, maybe. But it's so unique as a comedy and yeah. so interesting and with great performances. I think if, if you haven't seen Being John Malkovich, that's one you've got to check out. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Mr. Dalton Stewart? What's your first selection for favorite 90s cult film? Well, I decided to go revealing on mine. And, you know, we've kind of been talking about the craft in these. Put your shorts back on. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I will still be emotionally revealing, though. I understand why that made you uncomfortable, Arthur. Um, but, you know, we, we've kind of been talking about the craft as a film that you probably go back to as an adult and go, oh, okay. Um, so I, I try to think, what's that movie for me? And, uh, I mean, that sleepover movie for me was Boondock Saints. Uh, ah, there, there it is. Yeah, I know. And yep. we've talked talked about it on the show before we, we don't need to get too much into it uh it's bad it's actively not good uh but man when i was i didn't catch it until you know blockbuster picked it up um a couple years after its actual theatrical release so this would have been an early aughts movie for me but yeah from the ages of like 12 to 15 i thought this was the best movie ever made by god or man um i learned that i was very wrong um, much later in life, uh, you know, it doesn't take long getting into film to realize, oh God, that movie is just ripping off a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but I don't know. There, there's something kind of special to me. It still has a soft spot in my, in my heart. I mean, Willem Dafoe, uh, problematic though many of his scenes are, is giving a, a, a gonzo performance, uh, the likes of which, uh, Really, all all great Willem Dafoe uh, performances have a little little bit of taste of. So that that for me is is one of those those '90s cult classics that uh, is near and dear to my heart, despite the fact that it's pretty fucking bad. All righty, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am going to name the first film um, as a horror sci-fi mashup featuring one great Kevin Bacon and Reba McIntyre. That's right. Yeah, Tremors baby. Tremors guy. Oh, yeah. Baby. Oh, Tremors oh, yeah. is so um, much It's so good. Fun. It's a blast. I used to watch that movie on cable with yep. my granddad like All a lot. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a mess. I mean, it is a bad B movie kind of thing, but it's and it's so good. Three sequels and a television series and a prequel, I think. Yeah, and yeah. I'm all in. I am all in for all of that. It's just it is just too much fun. I love Tremors so much. Yes. So there you go for our first round, round two. Dal- uh, not Dalton, Arthur. Arthur, what do you want to pick? Please never insult me like that again. Hey. Uh, my second film, I just oh, where did it go? Dang nabbit. Um, oh, here we go. Um, so I am a big fan of Tim Burton. I, I do appreciate his work quite a bit. And, uh, you know, obviously I think it's, you know, slipped quite a bit in the last decade. But um, in the early uh, 90s and the mid-90s, he was doing some great work. And I, I, I do think Tim Burton has made two truly great uh, maybe masterpiece films, one being Big Fish, but the other is Ed Wood. And I think it is so apropos that Ed Wood would gain a cult following. All things considered. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, of Ed Wood himself. It couldn't be more perfect. Yeah. Uh, and so there's such a, a delight to that. And and the performances in that movie are, are top-notch. And I think that is a movie that Burton put so much of his own heart into that it, it is endearing and it is an interesting uh, look. And, and I like, you know, it's in black and white. And I, I like the things we're doing there. And, and Johnny Depp is, is doing good work here. And, and Martin Landau uh, is great as Bella Lugosi. Uh, yeah. He's so fantastic as Bela. 
and so it's it's I, I'm a big fan of biopics anyway, and, and that Hollywood history is kind of there, and and to really shed the, that kind of '90s Hollywood light onto you know such a cult icon in of himself in Ed Wood and Plan Nine, I, I think it's just uh, poetic in a lot of ways, and so I really appreciate that. All righty, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton, sir? What's your next favorite cult film from the 1990s? Well, this next one, I don't know that you could call it a cult film at the time. I think it's kind of turned into one because, as I recall, it was uh, I didn't bother to look at the box office, but I'm pretty sure it was fairly successful. Um, but it's Wayne's World. Um, I, I think as we go further on, um, it kind of gets forgotten about, and that movie is bonkers. Uh, there is a scene where Ed O'Neill... Uh, steals uh, Mike Myers' uh, fourth wall uh, narration to just talk about what happens when you kill a man in winter. Yeah. yeah. It's insane. Uh, there's a part where uh, Mike Myers opens a door to a bunch of guys doing ninja shit, and uh, um, Dana Carvey says, uh, what's what's that for? And he goes, oh, nothing. I just always wanted to open a door where some guys were doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. And this is a movie that I have dozens of times. Uh, my sister and I, when we were growing up, this was our favorite movie to watch together, like without exception. And probably to this day still is like, if my sister and I cannot decide what to watch together, we will rewatch Wayne's world because it holds such a special place in our heart. And again, you know, 1992, when it came out, it did pretty well. I mean, it was successful enough to get a sequel. Um, but I mean, how many people do you know that own Wayne's world? Uh, I mean, I, me, uh, I can't think of very many other people though. So, uh, again, holds a really special place in my heart. And I think, uh, it seems to have kind of fallen away in like in, in terms of being forgotten as like a really top notch studio comedy. And um, again, I love when, as Arthur mentioned with being John Malkovich, uh, not a studio film, but got a fairly wide release. Uh, I don't think it was a studio film anyway, um, but I know it got a fairly wide release when it came out. You don't get comedies. I, I mean, occasionally you will get a comedy that's so weird that you can't believe the studio made it. Yeah. And I think Wayne's world has that going for it. And th- those are, I mean, those are my favorite comedies are the ones where it feels like the writers, uh, just completely snuck a bunch of shit by the studio. And, um, I love that kind of stuff. All right. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart. My next film, um, is a cult film from the nineties, 1994. It features one Hugo weaving alongside, Oh, Guy Pierce, oh, alongside Terrence Stamp. Yep, uh, this is Priscilla, or the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, it's a drag queen film set in Australia. It's a road movie. It's lots of fun. It is uh, taking down some stereotypes. It is uh, really, um, it's, it's 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 so much fun. It's now, why so... do you go Priscilla over Tu Wong Fu? Because I think Tu Wong Fu is uh, well, I think it's an American copy. A and B, it's a little problematic. I mean, okay. in, in ways that Priscilla is not. Not that Priscilla doesn't have her own problems as well, but nonetheless, Priscilla is the name of the van by the way, which is hilarious. They name the bus Priscilla. That's awesome. Queen I don't think desert. I actually knew that. Yeah, it's 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 a I've, great... I've never I've never caught up with it, unfortunately. Oh man, uh, you need to cotton with it very, very quickly, <laughs> sir. Um, it is gonna be worth your time. Okay, I will. <laughs> cotton to it quickly. In fairness, I haven't seen Tu Wong Fu since I was like a child. I mean, yeah. I watched it with my mom one time when I was a kid, but in, I don't remember much about it. In terms of pure names, Wesley Snipes being Noxima Jackson's as a drag name is amazing. It's a great drag name. You know, um, or John Leguizama as a, as, as a drag princess, Chichi Rodriguez. It, it's, it's a lot of fun. But uh, that being said, uh, there's, I don't know. I, 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 get, a, I get a little ick with uh, a little It's ick. got some dicey stuff. It's got a little ick okay. uh, with Tu Wong Fu. And so I, I, I sometimes I don't know how good-hearted 
to Wong Fu is uh, compared to the uh, real good naturedness of Priscilla. So, gotcha. but I think a, as a double bill, a good time and comparative work would be had and would be worth anyone's time if they were so doing. So there you go with that. We move on to round three, the final round. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your final pick of your favorite cult films of the 1990s? We can't talk about 1990s cult films without talking about the 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 king himself, Kevin Smith, right? Uh, uh, you're talking about the, the, the once and former king? Yes, yes. Uh, how the mighty have fallen. Um, but uh, Well, he's podcasting now. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's doing a lot of things. I, I, I can't fault him. He's doing a lot you're of things. Right. You're right. It's just, it fucking makes me mad to talk about him because yeah. I... Those like first four movies mean a yeah. lot to me. Like I really appreciate them. And it is that first four movies that I'm gonna draw from the Jersey trilogy specifically, but it is Chasing Amy. I think Chasing mm. Amy is a masterpiece. Most people want to go to Clerks. Uh, a lot of people like Mallrats. Uh, Chasing Amy to me is is the best of those. And three. I think it only gets better like as the conversation about it changes, and we kind of problematize yeah. it and still talk about the good stuff that's still there. I think yeah. it, it only because I just recently read a couple of really great articles for it's uh, it had a 20th anniversary. Oh uh, um, yeah. Or is about to have one. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think it only gets sweeter. It's It almost gets more bitter with age, but that makes yeah. it more fun to talk about almost. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a movie that came to me at a very uh, uh, formative time in my mm-hmm. life. I talked about at length on People's History one time. And uh, uh, Dustin once, you know, always mentions that the auteur theory is a good way to get into film watching because it allows you to look at works from a filmmaker uh, and kind of find different elements and that's what happened with uh, Kevin Smith's work and I had watched all of those in Dogma and Jay and Silent Bob despite the massive problems with their tourism but yes, yes yeah so, correct yeah. but I mean as a way of getting into filmmaking it's one of the better yeah. ways to go um, and so that's what I did and I, I think you know from an ideological standpoint it, it, it kind of challenged me and changed some ways I look at things but it also uh, from a f- film watching standpoint it, it was different from the the studio comedies Dalton mentioned it was completely different from anything I'd been watching at the time and uh, it's just a very sincere movie, and I, I appreciate quite a bit a lot uh, about that film. And so Chasing Amy would be my, my top pick. Love that pick, Arthur. What do you say, Dalton, for your third and final 90s cult film pick? So uh, this next one is, in fact, I, not only a sleepover movie, but one in which I can like vividly remember. Um, and, uh, again, this movie came to me a couple years after its heyday. So this is another late nineties film. One of my favorite films from 1999, it's office space. Oh, yeah. um, I saw this movie yep. probably Oh two Oh three. So I'm like 12, 13 years old, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Um, I knew nothing about this movie, never heard of it. And again, I, I might've seen a, a commercial on comedy central saying they were going to run it. But again, yeah. I, I did, I knew nothing about this movie going in. And from the first frame, I was just like, what the fuck is this movie? This is amazing. I I was just completely flabbergasted. I mean, you know, Ghetto Boys being featured prominently in the soundtrack. uh, I had already started to, like, kind of have an attraction to hip-hop at that point. But, you know, it was much more sanitized because that's who my parents were. Uh, I I was, you know, a very sheltered kid and happened to be over one of the bad kids' houses. And he had a bootleg copy of this movie that I think somebody had stolen. This is, you know, this is early days of, like, internet piracy. Um, And, again, watching this movie, just the entire film, I was like, this is absolutely outstanding. I never had seen anything so transgressive in terms of attacking, you know, expected power structures. This, This was, like, for me, the first movie that I ever saw that was, and, again, a you know, most of the, the films that are famous that came out in 19, most of the American films famous uh, that continue to have legs from 1999 all kind of engage with the same thing. This is the sort of, uh, you know, 
early 30s Gen X ennui that was starting to happen in the late 90s before uh, the world uh, as we know it uh, in the West kind of started to go a different direction. Um, and Mike Judge just does such a great job. And again, Mike Judge is one of the, the comedy greats of, of his generation. I mean, between yeah, definitely. Office Space, uh, King of the Hill, Silicon Valley these days. Beavis and Butthead. Uh, Beavis and Butthead. I mean, he's, yeah, he's completely... Um, extract. Oh God, I have never seen Extract. Actually, uh, I've heard not bad things about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, but again, I, I think it was such a great opportunity. I hadn't even watched King of the Hill at this point in my life. I don't even yeah. think I'd watch Beavis and Butthead. Like that's how sheltered I was. Oh yeah. So yeah, Office Space like came out of nowhere and was profane and just whip smart. I mean, that movie is written so well, um, and it just completely blew me away. And um, I, I absolutely love that film. Corey Warman was his name. Um, I don't think anybody gives a shit if I say their name uh, on, on a podcast. Uh, that was the kid who showed me that movie. And, uh, man, that, that movie uh, really opened my eyes and uh, continues to be uh, a film that is near and dear to my heart. And, man, I kind of want to rewatch it right now. But uh, we got to get through October first. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Adultster. My last pick is uh, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. I just love that movie. It is. And we've so talked much, about it on the show, and yeah. we've talked about it on the show. It is in a very, very '90s, but very, very '90s sci-fi. Yes, sir. You're, you're going to go with that over Total Recall. I am. Uh, I think. I think. Col- yeah, I think I am. Uh, because there, there's something about the cult film in that it does have this sort of fan base. I don't, I don't really think of that. Um, Total Recall feels like an art house action movie that is just sort of bonkers. It doesn't really have that following with it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not like these Total Recall yeah. fans. There's not like merch you buy. They for Total just Recall. released yet another animated movie uh, in the set in the Starship Troopers universe yeah. with Casper Van Dien reprising his role. And they did the uh, Fandang or F- 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 Fathom Events screening yep. with it. Yeah. So it, it it has a different sort of following, I think, mm-hmm. as part of why I would classify it. That. Okay. But uh, I do think I like Total Recall as a film better. Okay. You know, yeah. to your question. So yes, indeed. But yeah, it it's it's just so much fun. You know, you maggots want to live forever. I mean, this is this is just good stuff. And uh, the uh, the tongue in cheek, uh, you know, taking down of fascism is just brilliant. Uh, the way in which uh, the original work is completely unworked by Verhoeven and uh, the screenwriters uh, is is just good stuff. And so um, you can do no better, I think, uh, than Starship Troopers. Featuring a, uh, well, I guess old Doogie Hauser, young Neil Patrick Harris as a psychic member of the uh, military intelligence. Yes. What a fucking crazy movie. It's, yeah, it's, it's bonkers, and it's so much fun. Yeah. So, like it a lot. So, there you go, dear listener. Those are our favorite cult films from the 1990s. There are a great many more. There are lists on the interwebs that you could find. And if you're trying to come up with ideas and whatnot, and you want to tweet them to us and say, no, no, guys, you should have said this film because it is clearly the best cult film of the 90s. We'd love to hear your feedback about that via those magical means of social media. But we're not not going to talk about it anymore because it's time to get down to business. And we're back with that business, which is, as always, analysis. We are going to do some analysis of the film, The Craft. I'm very, very excited to be talking about that with my dear co-host. And I think we have to begin with the elephant in the room. Arthur sent us an article, and uh, Dalton and I had a bit of a conversation about this beforehand. Um, This film is touted and uh, teamed forth as something of a feminist classic. 
Um, maybe not so much? Yeah. Question mark? Yeah, this, uh, this article comes from uh, Bloomhouse.com uh, by Michelle Lopez, um, written just uh, October of last year. Yeah, it's fairly um, recent. Yeah, just kind of working through. So, again, as we're working through these ideas, I just kind of want to give credit on uh, what got us thinking about this. But, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the article brings some good points and really – um, was good to read right as because Arthur, you sent it to me uh, or sent it to us. I think I just finished watching it. Okay. Um, so it was yeah. really nice to have that to kind of like, all right, let's let's get this going as we're thinking about it. Uh, and the film definitely addresses a couple of key points. Uh, first and foremost, um, th- let's talk about Skeet Ulrich. Um, so our lead is spurned by Skeet um, and made a mockery of him. And um, th- in the context of the film, and this point is made in the article, you could make the argument that, okay, the love spell is meant to embarrass him. And it certainly does. That's what, yeah, that's how it feels at the start. Yeah. But our lead seems to legitimately like this guy for reasons that defy comprehension. Yeah. Um, and again, you can't really think of a... I mean, yes, there are feminist films that deal with sexual assault as a topic. Absolutely. Um, sexual assault is dealt with in such a blase fucking manner in this film uh, that, I mean, that right there is a pretty gross strike against yeah. it. Um, and, and his punishment for that is that Feruza Bolk, uh, like, seduces him uh, it, incognito. It's, yeah. it's just a, a really bonkers plot thread in that third act. Do you know how yeah. to punish rape? Weird them out. Man, if you're so weirded out, man, you will really regret being an attempted rapist. Yeah, it's what? very strange. And again, uh, we, we don't know how much... We're, I don't want to put too much of this on Skeet Ultra's character just because he, he was magicified. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it just further problematizes the film in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, and then again, when the article makes the point that when he does... Um, you know, uh, repent when he makes a, a forthright, direct, and sincere apology, which is really the only thing that you can do in that scenario if you've done something that heinous. He gets thrown out a fucking window. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it, man. I don't know. Here's another thing I find problematic about the whole Skeet Ulrich rape thing is that the reason why he attempts the rape is because of Robin Tunney's actions. This is one of those mm-hmm. yeah. you asked for it mm-hmm. kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and, gross, and that that to me feels very icky. Yeah, yeah, it it, it made me feel uncomfortable, and, and the whole thing to begin with doesn't make sense. It's just from a narrative plot plotting point. Uh, I, I mentioned off air I, I'd seen Wish Upon, and we have a lot of similar plot. I mean, the plot structure lines up almost identically, uh, but in that film, the main main characters. Uh, she sees a guy that she wants him to notice her. And in that instance, it makes sense for her to cast a love spell as a character motivation, right? Because right. she's not being noticed by the, the hot guy, the jock. Here, she's been noticed, and she's also been jilted and spurned. And so it, it, it it's so problematic to me in the first place that she is almost in this abusive type of relationship that she's wanting to engage with and it, it's uncomfortable for me to kind of see that it, it it just doesn't make sense from a logic standpoint exactly because it really throughout the you know the narrative of the film she spurns him you know yeah. he, he puts moves on her and she's like nah you know like i'm just kind of enjoying hanging out yeah. um and then he gets exactly what he wants yeah he he makes a mockery of her uh, which makes her like go uh, head over heels for him because this is the '90s and apparently that's a thing that happened. Um, it's fucking bonkers. Um, it, it just defies. 
and again, we we all do stupid ass stuff when we we um, find ourselves drawn to somebody, yeah. especially somebody that we know is not good for us. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you know plenty of films engage with that idea as well. Yeah. But it just doesn't work throughout the course of the film, and, and it, again, it just kind of further devolves from there with that first yeah. that first offense, uh, because then we get things like the fact that. Um, uh, oh my god! I forget Robin Turney's character's name, but um, Robin's character, um, Sarah. Sarah, thank you. Sarah is the only one that gets to stay a witch at the end of the movie. Yeah. What do the other three? Uh, so she is pretty, white, and relatively well off. What are her and three normal. cohorts? What are her three cohorts? Not one of them is not white. One of them is not rich, and one of them is uh, sees herself as not pretty due to a disfigurement. Yeah. Um, huh. That's did anybody else feel like this movie was about drugs in that last scene? Because they come in, they're both kind of like, "Hey, you got man, any more of that hey, magic? Hey, man, you got some of that magic? Y'all got yeah. any more of that magic anywhere?" I, I did not pick up that vibe, but now that you say it, yeah. I, but doesn't I mean it feels like it because they're using this there. magic as an escape throughout the film. Okay. It gives them empowerment, okay. and so I mean that's a very on the surface reading. But it, that last sequence when they come back to talk to her, it feels like they're coming to ask for drugs. That's very interesting, You're and right. to me, it's that's such an Tonally, it's an odd scene. Yeah, it, well, those, it, it's not really brought up ever throughout the film prior. Like that, 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 that parallel, that allegory doesn't yeah. really take shape. And but you're right. I mean, the way that that scene is played, absolutely. Yeah. But it's weird that that's like about the only time where that really yeah. comes up. So that that is really it's interesting. Tonally and scripting, it just felt like an odd scene to end on. Like the way those characters are written, the way it all kind of plays out. Like these are two recovering addicts who are trying to get their next fix. Mm-hmm. And it, it just felt out of place, I think. Mm, so yeah. I, I think all the problem, and even uh, going back to that earlier point, uh, and and the the you know the idea it is it seems like Feruza Bulk is after all of this power just so she can bed uh, Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, she's after him. Like I mean, she goes there that under the vein of the getting revenge. Yeah, but it feels like she just wants to sleep with him. Like she's always kind of felt jealous of Sarah. And so this is her chance to just hook up with Chris. Yeah. Is, it, is it Chris? I keep uh, going, wanting to call him Chris. He's Skeet Ulrich. Yeah. I mean, I really, in all of our hearts, yeah. he's always going to be Skeet. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's moments like these where it's very clear this movie was written and directed by dudes. Yeah. I mean, it just becomes painfully obvious that old dudes tried to write a movie for teenage girls. Well, let's hit the big E on the eye chart anyway in terms of power and the sources of power. Manon is a male deity. Yeah, And man. the way in which these women are able to get power is by getting that man inside them. Yeah, I'm dude. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, it's a real fucking problem. Yeah, it's They gross. invoke Manon and accept... I mean, they... The language is super sexual. Yeah, even and when they're first describing Manon, mm-hmm. it's he's gender neutral, but then it's very masculine throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, and talking about he and those those kind of uh, pronouns. You're right. It's that first scene. They do stay neutral. You're right. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, I mean, it's dis- decidedly male pronouns yeah. for him throughout. Yeah, because yeah, the way you're going to take power as a woman is you get a man inside you. Yeah. yeah, it's and, fucked up, dude. And then you've got the magic inside you. Why? Because now he gives you his seed and you make babies. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. I mean, it's, I mean uh, just, to, to, just to lay it out as, as obvious as obvious. It, uh, man, I, I, I get, again, that these girls are taking power. These girls are taking revenge on other mean girls who are picking on them. I get that these girls are, are taking hold of their own beauty and they're trying to find that within themselves. You know, I mean, Nev Campbell uh, is never ugly. I don't care if she's got burns on her shoulders. Ne- Nev Campbell, she's never ugly. Yeah, but, you know, plain and simple. This movie attempting to make Nev Campbell ugly by like letting her hair be kind of frumpy and putting her in a sweater is 
absolutely absurd. Yeah, it's bonkers, bonkers stuff. You it's know? also funny to me. I mean, looking at this, uh, we're going down a tangent here, but we, we look at this. We've got, uh, you know, uh, I can't think of her, her name, uh, Rachel. I can't think of her name in the movie. Um, uh, oh, Rochelle. It, Rochelle. Yeah, Rochelle, Rochelle, played sorry. by Rachel True. Yeah. yeah. So you got Rochelle, and and her kind of subplot and her major conflict is racism in school. Yes. And then we've got uh, Nev Campbell and she's got these scars. So she has all this major self-confidence, you know, issues and like those kind of mental things and this kind of uh, odd relationship maybe with her mother that is kind of maybe there. And then we've got the, the home life of Feruza Balk and the abusive family situation that she's in and, and the she's, they're so poor that she's sleeping in a room with a major leak, uh, sleeping in the rain. Um, which seemed like an odd uh, choice, but uh, and then we've got the rich white girl who's just been jilted. Like it seems like such. Yeah. Well, I mean, her mother died, and she was suicidal. But, I mean, it's not like she just died. She yeah. died like eighteen years ago. Yeah, right. it's decidedly a sliding scale of problems. Yeah, yes. for sure. And she, she's just the new girl. Like it feels like they're trying to equate that with these other actually major. Yeah, I mean, I poverty, can... racism, disfigurement. Those are some pretty like heavy issues to deal with as yeah. a teenager. You're just the new out of place girl. Being a new kid who, with a parent <laughs> who passed, who has like a really supportive stepmother. Get yeah. the fuck out of here! <laughs> are you serious? Yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. hard. To, it's hard to feel bad for Sarah. But here, here's the thing, though, and, and this is a question I, I, I've been thinking about a lot lately: is, is the ways in which we evaluate films. So let's think about early '90s. Let's think about a female empowerment film. How many of them were there? How many even existed? This film, I think, part of the reason why it gained the traction it did is because it was one of the first times you saw this. Yeah. It would be like first times uh, someone sees gay representation in a film. Yeah. The first time somebody with the when Whoopi Goldberg sees O'Hara on on Star Trek the first time in 1963, yeah. right? Now, yeah. O'Hara's got problems, crazy problems. But, but, but she's a lead character who's a black woman. Right. Yeah. And that I, – I, I did read some other articles, and I, I came across another uh, review analysis uh, where the girl was writing – um, saying, you know, yes, it's problematic, but this was the first time I saw someone like myself, a Wiccan, a goth, on screen, and, and I, I think didn't that's, know that's that big. could be a thing. That's absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, for the for all the faults, there is that kind of redeeming quality. And I think that that's a good place for us to pivot, because we have, like, kind of hashed out some of these really problematic yeah. issues the film has, but... We do like this movie, and yeah. I, or at the very least, we, we don't dislike it. So I think, yeah, I think that's a good place to pivot is to... Yes, just because something is problematic does not make it inherently without value. And here's the meta conversation, though. At what point do we give it a pass? Because one thing that we don't do for films from the 60s is we say, well, back then, that yeah. was the prevailing attitude at the time, right? Or, you know, regarding racism or women mm-hmm. or gender norms or any of that kind of stuff. And we're, we're, and we're very, very quick to jump on that and say, no, 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 it's still bad. And then that's what we want to emphasize is what's problematic about it. We don't have this – I don't have the same urge to do that with the craft. But my question is, am I using a double standard here, or is it a different uh, kettle of fish altogether? I think it's probably a little column A, a little column B. Okay. I think when a film has been officially lionized or canonized, it becomes much more difficult to uncanonize it after you realize it's problematic. Uh, I, I think occasionally you have films like that where uh, I think a big part of it is, is it bad in hindsight? Does it actually hold up? Uh, because there are plenty of films from, I mean... Oh, God. Uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head uh, that I actually, like, really like that's, like, glaringly problematic. I was trying to... 
uh, Rebel Without a Cause is actually kind of like progressive, uh, both in terms of like gender and sexuality representation. I mean, it's coded for sure. Right. Um, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, um, but I, I, I think a big part of it is: is the movie good? Was it? Is it well received at the time? Is it influential? And is it good in hindsight? And I think um, this is the best thing I can think of off the top of my head. I've never seen the film Last Tango in Paris, but um, recently on the podcast, The Canon, uh, hosted by Amy Nicholson, she had uh, Allison Wilmore, who I adore from uh, the Film Spotting uh, SVU podcast, basically came and said, I want to make sure nobody tries to put Last Tango in Paris in the canon. Not to mention, I mean, yes, there's plenty. I mean, the movie is decidedly problematic in terms of, like, issues of consent, both in the filmmaking, uh, mm-hmm. but also, you know, just in the film. Um, and just makes the argument, also, it's not very good in right. hindsight. It does a lot of shit that we thought was good. That I mean, Paul and Kale loved that movie when it came out. But in hindsight, it's pretty bad, um, is the argument that's made. Well, I, again, I've never seen it. But I think that's the best example is when you look back at something and it's problematic, do its its high, do do its features its positive attributes shine through those things that are you know decidedly of their time and uh, I, I see for the craft even at the time you know pretty middle in studio movie what makes it shine through is issues of representation not necessarily issues of technique or innovation and oh. I, I, uh, go ahead no, no well well I want what I want to say is like I I feel like despite its flaws and it does have those inherent flaws that are come through when you do have a white male director and screenwriter Mm -hmm. i do still think it is trying to give something different and do something different and it may not fully understand that yeah but i think it may at least be trying and i and i think we entered that same conversation as we would with buffy yeah which is going to come out right after this i believe Mm -hmm. right 97 Mm -hmm. is that when buffy uh no 90 uh buffy was 93 actually is it that old it's a little bit older the original film the television i'm talking about the show oh yeah the show's gonna hit 97 okay and yeah i mean we're actually in the midst of kind of having a re-examination of joss whedon his career right now um and i think that's a really good example arthur is is having your heart in the right place does that make a difference? And I, yeah. I think the craft as a film certainly seems to have its heart in the right place yeah. more often than not. Yeah. Well, see, the film I kept thinking about in conversation with all this mm. was Robin Williams's The Birdcage. Okay. Kevin Lane. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, for, for many, many, many gay men, one of the first times that you were seeing sort of major actors, you know, doing drag, yeah. major actors as homosexual, you know, major, major sort of uh, gay queer representation going on in a film. But Nathan Lane is... He is a caricature. He is a stereotype. He is his character is is really problematic, and really so, several of the other characters. I mean, there, there's a so, there's a certain roundness to Robin Williams' representation here, maybe, mm-hmm. but it's still not without problems. And do we say we are glad of this thing to have happened as a landmark to move forward? Because if a film like The Birdcage came out right now, we would burn it down yeah. now. We would yeah. we would absolutely set the theater on fire for this kind of foolishness. Well, film that's all about staying in the closet and like trying to appease other people right Right. and then i think uh, a more recent example of this uh is dallas buyers club where jared leto wins an academy award for playing a character a caricature of a trans woman um and again the character's transness is frequently played for laughs yeah um and it's just really deeply fucked up um and i think these are the kinds of things we're gonna look back at and go Yes, and I, I think the other thing. Let's go back to the birdcage example because what that's early nineties, late eighties, early nineties. Uh, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. um, we're also talking about a film that's setting the tone for the way yeah. this people a people group is looked at in media. Absolutely, and that can and, and no matter where your heart's at in the making of that film, 
it's also going to, you know, in setting the stage, um, that's going to influence the way people look at that. If that's their first major exposure to a, a subset, the gay community, the gay culture, you know, that's the the mass of people, you know, people in uh, small towns or Middle rural America, area yeah. that don't have a gay community or gay culture that's out, that's public. Yeah. Um, that's going to be their experience with it. And that's that's the stereotype that they're going to lend to that community group. And I think that's where it's damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's def- definitely it's it's. Gonna... But that being said, I've got gay friends who love the birdcage, yeah. not because of what it does, but because of what it did. Yeah. And, I, and I think this, there's a similar sort of thing that we're dealing here with the craft yeah. is that when you see those first representations, yeah. they are always represented from within the status quo. That you need those first sort of uh, footholds to gain purchase, and then from there, perhaps we're sort of able to to massage those t- footholds into something where we can start questioning the way representation happens and begin to question and, and you know, evaluate and critique the status quo. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of uh, what it's really making this whole conversation is making me think of is uh, what, what I like to call the, the, the breakfast club paradox, right? Yeah. Uh, Cause Ali Sheedy's character is, you know, kind of uh, vaunted as this like weirdo in cinema, right? This, this outcast in cinema and her character arc is, being less weird mm-hmm. uh, for other people's amusement. Now, the question of whether or not that character wants to be less weird herself, let's go ahead and keep that off the table for right now because we could go for an hour about that. Right. But I think what the craft is trying to do is show, hey, look, not everybody wants to be like everybody else, and that's perfectly fine. The problem it has is the same as Breakfast Club Paradox because by the end of the film, um, our main character is uh, less, quote, weird, right? She's still a witch she's still practicing uh the craft as it were um but we've got uh, one in a mental hospital um who went full cuckoo bananas for power uh and then we've got two others who uh apparently didn't really mean that much to them in the first place um so it's decidedly punishes or covers up weirdness or deviation from the norm by the end of the film and whether or not that outweighs the representation is really, I think, the great question at the end of the day. For a lot of people, it's not. Uh, it doesn't. It does not negate. It does not um, cancel out the importance of seeing Feruza Balk being uh, loud and weird and proud of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I think that's really important to see uh, people who remind you of yourself on screen. And sometimes you got to take the good with the bad. And um, I think as we've been circling this, for me personally. That's the conclusion I come to is sometimes that is more important. And what has to happen next is let's talk about what doesn't work. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to 1939. Let's look at Gone with the Wind. Okay. Right. Sure. Because we have, um, you know, Hattie McDaniel there mm. playing Mammy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It, 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 and, and there's yeah. an argument. It's an argument because it, it's a period piece and whatever you want to do. But we've got Mammy, and she's very. She sets a stereotype, I think, or falls a stere- falls into a stereotype Absolutely. at least at the time. Um, but we've got a person of color, a female mm. person of color in 1939, who's going to be the first to win an Academy Award for a black person in acting. Did you, I don't think she won. Or did she though? I she think won. she won. She won. She won supporting she, actress. Yeah. Oh wow. And oh, I wow. think that's important for a community that is jilted mm. and held back and restrained to see. And it's within the status quo, and later we mm-hmm. can question it. Yeah. And right. later we can go back and say, yeah, hey, this whole happy slave narrative is some fucking dog shit. Yeah. 
But I, I think, yeah, man, and that's where I, then we really get into some juice because now we're talking about something more than being a social outcast. Now we're talking about, um, you know, societal power structures, right, and, and things that actively oppress people. And again, the oppression that you see in high school because you're not like other people is decidedly traumatic for an individual for sure, but it's not traumatic for a group of people uh, in quite the same way. And again, I think... But that, that's not to say that uh, situations of bullying, slut-shaming, and that kind of stuff are not significant. They, well, again, they're, they're traumatic for the individual, and I think they do speak to, especially when we're talking about you know issues of gender within the craft, yeah, they do speak to larger societal issues of gender. Um, but be, being a, a, a weird goth kid uh, is definitely not the same thing as uh, you know the power structure holding up the narrative of the happy slave. Th- that's the only point that I was right, making. Right, right, right. But you're absolutely right, Arthur. I mean, Hattie McDaniel's win is a big deal. It's a huge deal, and the fact that Gone with the Wind is a movie that's so problematic, I refuse to watch it. Um, I just don't. I have no. I have do not have three and a half hours of my life to dedicate to yeah. the glorification of uh, plantation culture. Um, but Hattie McDaniel's win is a big deal. Although you know she didn't actually get to go to the ceremony and had to go sit off in the corner by herself, which is there you go, there yeah. you have it. I, I think that that's kind of. Uh, shows you what was actually happening in 1930 well not the 1940s uh, ceremony but you know whatever it's it's one of those things again it's the breakfast club paradox we could talk about um ali sheedy's character for literally an hour um because it's it's simultaneously problematic and also kind of special and important and um that is what uh, i think makes the craft great to talk about is the fact that it means a lot to a lot of people and at the same time is full of just giant potholes in terms of what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I think so, absolutely. And so that's what, that's what makes this film very interesting. And it makes these kinds of conversations that we're having interesting because, yeah, this is not one of the great films of feminism, you know, even though it does in, in many ways for many young women, it was an empowering feminist moment watching the films. Yes, it does pass the Bechdel test, but if nothing else, we learned that the Bechdel test is not the do-all end-all. Right, and uh, so that's 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 important as well. And so we have to we have to keep thinking, keep adding some nuance, keep moving those conversations uh, forward. And that's why we do what we do here at the show. And that's why I'm so glad to be in Shocktober because I'm telling you what, horror films are always full of this kind of stuff. We got another horror film coming up down the pike now uh, as we continue down this uh, Shocktober marathon. Yeah, but before we do that, don't we have to do shelf and trash? Oh, you know what we do? I was you just saved him, Arthur, and that's that's what makes you a good friend That's um, because yeah, you're gonna let me drown right there yeah we had to render a verdict I oh guess. yeah i was gonna let you drown no were you you were gonna, he was gonna shove your head underwater and hold it it, it was for that cotton joke earlier <laughs> yeah. Any, anyway <laughs> i deserve it so shelf a trash elf for test dalton what do you say you know what i'm gonna go ahead and say shelf it because it's kind of hard to find it is streaming right now but it frequently is not um and again i think it's 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 just kind of weird and special enough that uh, i th- i think it, it transcends um the my first else, uh, I'm going to go with the TV show. Uh, I'm going to recommend um, Riverdale, uh, also starring Skeet Ulrich, the uh, the CW TV show that uh, updates the Archie Comics uh, universe. That um, there's a lot of conversations about um, whether or not its representation is actually you know progressive, um, and whether or not that matters. So again, it's just kind of ties into this conversation we've been having. And again, it's a show that I really like. I like its. It's sort of surrealist soapiness that it has. Um, so that was something I wanted to bring up. Um, I also wanted to recommend um, 
just uh, some other things that feel decidedly less problematic in their their feminism. Um, so let's talk about a documentary I really like called The Punk Singer about Kathleen Hanna um, and the Riot Girl movement and Kathleen Hanna as a person. It's a great movie. Uh, it's a fabulous film. Uh, documentary I really like a lot, and uh, a witch movie that's decidedly by a man uh, that is decidedly less problematic in its feminism, and that's The Witch from last year, which is, uh, I think, decidedly uh, less problematic, although definitely darker, definitely more upsetting, uh, but uh, is about uh, sometimes you got to burn the motherfucker down um, and start all over. All right. Thanks for that very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf for trash? And thank you again, Elser instead. Uh, I, I think I've got to trash it. I, I do. Yeah. I, it just doesn't sit as well it. for me. And it, it's, it's, it's just not for me. Um, so instead, I, I think, you know, Skeet and uh, Nev Campbell are going to make a better movie in 96. So I think you watch Scream. Yeah. Uh, but primarily I want to focus on, I'm going to pick three movies that also end in a mental institution uh, that can generate some fun conversation. The first is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, um, uh, which is a very interesting movie to talk about, especially if you want to talk about a tourism and, and, you know, looking at representation of societal norms. Uh, those questions can all be discussed there. The next is uh, the great cult film from the 2000s, Jennifer's Body, uh, which is a fun yeah. movie. Uh, I, yeah. I like it a lot. We talked about it before. Uh, and so it's, it's just fun. It's, I like it's it more than movie. the craft. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely do. Uh, Same. so check that out. And finally, uh, we're going to go with, uh, Marty's, uh, horror film and that's Shutter Island. Yeah. Uh, I thought you might go Leo with DiCaprio. One. I and really so, thought you were going to go with, uh, Batman forever. Ooh, I guess I could have, but why would I do that? <laughs> because it's wonderful. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, check out Shutter Island. I, I don't know that there's as much there to talk about, but it, it's fun. Uh, Leo is uh, walking around for a couple hours yeah, and stuff. Good, it's a good spoopy house movie. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a fun time. Uh, we got uh, Ted Irvine, uh in in there, and we've got uh, what's his name from The Watchmen. I can't think of his name right now. Rorschach. Oh, uh, uh, Jackie him. Earl Haley. Yeah, Jack, yeah, yeah, thank you, Jackie Earl Haley. He's 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 always a fun wacko. Uh, and so I think those are three uh, movies you could watch instead of this and still get some good conversations out of it. Excellent choices. Arthur. I like that a lot. So um, I am definitely going to say shelf i think this movie is definitely worth your time with its problems despite its problems yeah, you're kind of there with me Ellen. yeah yeah okay. I, and i and i think i think the problems are are part of the value right that here we have this thing that is imperfect and let's mm-hmm. discuss where it succeeds let's discuss where it fails i think it's totally worthwhile and as a 90s teen myself um this is very very sort of important important to the oeuvre and so the double feature i recommend and i'm not sure you guys can tell me how you ought to order the double feature because i'm not sure about this question so i already know what you're gonna say right, right. you're gonna you're gonna flip this coin over uh from uh, more traditionally feminine to more traditionally masculine yeah um the the, the boys um the boys of, goth movie the boys goth movie rite of passage versus the girls goth movie rite of passage mm-hmm. so the crow with brandon lee mm-hmm. is definitely the film which do you watch first and what do you do in between okay so i'm thinking you're going to start with whichever has been seen by less people in the double feature okay um i think they're both kind of underseen and yet overseen by some i think the crow is probably a little bit more seen than the craft by and large though so I think maybe start with craft because patriarchy. Yeah. Then go with the crow. And then I think finish out, try to find a, a goth movie from the nineties that, um, 
doesn't um, you know skew uh, one way uh, over overly masculine. Try to find something a little bit less gendered. Hmm. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Maybe the Doom Generation, uh, which is really transgressive and really weird and really gothy. Um, I haven't like, seen it. It's fucked up, man. It's it's wild. Uh, oh, it's, I'm in then. It's the first movie I remember seeing uh, fake semen in. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's been it's obviously an independent film. It's got Rose McGowan. Um, it's uh, decidedly problematic, uh, but also um, you know really uh, uh, early queer cinema. Also kind of got a goth aesthetic a little bit. So maybe that, but maybe something more mainstream, just to for the sake of the cohesiveness of the triple feature. But uh, yeah, I think you're onto something there, man. Alrighty, well, do you have a oh. thought there, Arthur? Oh, no, we're good. Okay, okay. Well, we're good. All right, so there you go. Those are our recommends. Your syllabus just got longer, dear listener. And the conversation does keep going, and we are going to do another movie for Shocktober, as I began to allude to earlier. <laughs> That's right, we will be. Before I uh, fouled it up. Um, what is that movie, Arthur? Well, we've done our fun 90s movie, uh, but we always want to hit a franchise or a quote heavy hitter. Uh, it's still a phrase. But, um, oh, and there's a movie that really kind of changed the game. I, I think in a lot of ways it's extremely tiny budget, uh, relatively new. It's one of the more newer franchises that really got launched because of a film. Yeah, I think people think heavy hitters. They think Freddy and yeah. Jason and Michael. And we haven't. I mean, since I mean, you had a couple of minor franchises in the '90s with Scream was probably the most uh, r- r- prevalent. But uh, Saw uh, from James Wan, and, and not only did it, I mean, it kind of re breathed new life into the kind of the slashers kind of started a new cycle with this kind of quote unquote i won't call it torture porn uh but kind of that idea it's kind of gotten that idea Hi- hyper it. hyper it, it made studios realize they could make hyper a bunch of money on yeah. the hyper violent films um and and it, it kind of kick-started a new cycle it, culturally i mean i think it kick-started the idea of the escape room uh franchise thing Big time, happening man. um fad and, and so it's doing all that but it also kick-started the career of uh, a fantastic director, and that's James Wan, who, who is one who of, is just blowing just up, working with multi-million dollar yeah. budgets now. I mean, we, we're talking about a guy we, we, who did Saw, who did Dead Silence, and somehow overcame that and made two Conjuring films and Insidious franchise. He started another franchise. Let's, yeah. let's point that out. And and now he's working on Fast and Furious movies and and and, and the DCEU. And so I think it's fantastic to go back to that starting point and see where it all began because uh, saw is a game changer for for a little in a lot of ways and i haven't seen it in probably the better part of a decade yeah i'm very very excited to be taking a look at this because these conversations are what make watching the movie so worthwhile we want you to keep doing this with us dear listeners we keep trucking right on through our shocktober you keep watching we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time those fingers in my head Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genre Cast. For all things Good Trash, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music is made by one Mr. Arthur Gordon with a little help from Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL from the Wonder Woman soundtrack. And our outro music this week is Witchcraft by Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra. What good would common sense for it do? Cause it's witchcraft Wicked witchcraft And although I know It's strictly taboo When you arouse the need in me My heart says yes indeed in me 
Proceed with what you're leading me to It's such an ancient pitch But one I wouldn't switch Cause there's no nicer witch than you 